Second Peter chapter 3. Ever since the first time I took uh, my car that I purchased a couple of years ago for an oil change to the Dodge dealer, they've been sending me coupons in the mail and in the email. In time for service, bring your car in for an oil change. And they're giving me such a great deal, I can't pass it up. I used to change my own oil, but, but uh, I can take it in there cheaper than I can do it myself. But they also send me reminders that say, it's time for your 60,000-mile service, your preventative maintenance. That's where they make up for all the cheap oil changes. <laughs> yeah, you need this and this and this and this. While it's a little bit annoying to get their emails and their coupons and so on, I do want to take good care of my car and hopefully drive it for a long time, so regular maintenance is important. As we come to the beginning of the year, I want to talk to you about some regular maintenance. God didn't give us a, an inspection schedule, if you will, for our lives, but it seems like good wisdom to take a milestone like a new year or a birthday, or an anniversary, or some other milestones that we mark, and to take a step back and say, what should I be doing in this next year? How should I be growing? And I believe that uh, the third chapter of Second Peter gives us a good outline by which we can examine ourselves and make some plans for 2011. I'm going to read the whole chapter so you get the context. We'll only be considering the last half of this chapter. But starting in verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in, in, both, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, 
without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved... Since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Peter is addressing believers who are living for the Lord, but he is warning them about some people who scoff, at the concepts of Christianity. In particular, people who would say, now this Jesus said he's coming back. And he said all these things are going to happen in the world, but look, look at the time, look at the date book. It's been 40 years since he left. Where's he at? He's sure taking his own sweet time. Now we look back over the course of 2,000 years, and we think, wow, they had a, they had a pretty short-term perspective. But they didn't know the whole truth of God's word. It hadn't been completely revealed. So they're looking forward saying, where's the promise of his coming? And as a result of that, they were saying, there's no use for you to live for the Lord. He's not coming back. You're wasting your time. And Peter says, no, no, just, just back that train up. He said, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. And so you need to be living for the Lord because... There is a cataclysm coming. There is a judgment coming. You need to be living for the Lord. In fact, I think the last verse in this chapter is kind of a summary of the whole thing, the instruction for us, as well as a specific instruction. You need to be growing. We should be growing in Christ. There is never a time to look forward and say, Ah... I've done about all I can do here. Look at ourselves and say, well, you know, I've grown enough. There's also never a time to look forward and say, the Lord is coming. I'm going to sell everything I have and sit right here on this spot and wait for him. There have been numerous people that have done that over the years. God says, look, there is a tremendous cataclysm coming. There is a tremendous judgment I'm going to bring on the world. There will be a time to stand in front of me for those who believe and those who don't believe. And here's what you should be doing in light of all of that. You should be growing. I hate to summarize things too much because there's <laughs> you always get in trouble when you do that. But one of the great summaries of the Christian life is growing into Christ-likeness. Are you growing? Truly, nobody is perfect. But the question is, are you stepping forward every day? And that's what this chapter concludes with. He says, be growing. And so I see as several areas that he has identified here that I would like to challenge you with for evaluation. For evaluation. Because, you know, um, if I were to take my car into the service place, they have a list of things they will evaluate. They don't just take a look at it and go, boy, it's kind of dirty. 
yeah, I'll just get rid of it. No, they will go this and this and this, and I will get a piece of paper back that lists it all out. In fact, they will measure some things, like how thick are my brakes. They'll say they're this thick, you got this much more. They all these factors. I want to give you some factors today to help you evaluate your life. Starting in verse 11. <clears throat> and the first area would be this, would be the area of holiness. And the question we ought to ask is, how far are we separated from sin? Um, and, and by the way, my concept here is one of just giving you the questions and helping you understand them because you need to do the evaluation with God's word and with God. It's not about me determining where you're at. Holiness, how far are we separated from sin? Look at verse 11, please. Therefore, since all these things are coming, as we call them, the end of the world, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The root word for holy is most common, is often translated sanctify or to set apart. And here's an example of it from Hebrews 10. But this man... Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice, one payment for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting for while his enemies were made his footstool, for by one offering or one payment, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This verse contains several truths that we need to understand if we want to understand the word holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, what he tells us here is the way our holiness began is by Jesus Christ dying on the cross and paying for sin. You had a debt with God, and that debt is your sin. And God said, I will only accept a perfect sacrifice, a perfect blood sacrifice. And so Jesus Christ took on a human body. The eternal Son of God took on a human body, grew up, lived a perfect life, demonstrated his perfection, gave his life on the cross, and that payment for sin made it possible for God to take your sin away. If you are in sin, you are not holy. When you believe in Christ, your sin is removed, and you become holy. You become righteous. And the, the idea of holiness is a bit like this. If this is the condition of living in sin, and this is you, this is sin, God picked you up out of sin and put you over into the category of righteous. He took away your sin and made you a righteous person. You are holy. But this verse 14 also tells us that God will perfect you, but there is also a process going on of becoming holy. By one payment, He perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Holiness or sanctification is both a gift from God and a process that goes on as we walk through the Christian life. You cannot be holy until your sins are forgiven, but then there is work to be done. And the work to be done is us choosing to live in holiness, not choosing to live in sin as Christians. I planted many trees and shrubs and flowers and such this, this, this year in my backyard. But before I did that, I had a bunch of good topsoil brought in. Now the difference between good topsoil 
soil is my soil is hard clay and doesn't have any nutrients in it. And good topsoil is dirt that they've mixed with all kinds of nutritious things. My topsoil now used to be somebody's dirt pile. It was no good for anything. It might have been just like the dirt in my yard, but it was picked up full of weeds and cleaned up and new stuff was added that makes plants grow and put down in my yard. That's similar to what happened to you. You were a pile of sinful dirt. I know that's a really crude image, but that's what we were, what we were. And God scooped you out of sin and cleaned you up and put the life of Christ in and put you down in a place so that you can grow. And so now you have a responsibility to make choices in line with who you are. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just like you used to present your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And the word members there has to do with your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes, everything about your life. Our job, once God scoops us up and puts us down clean, our job is to make choices in line with that cleanness, to present ourselves to holiness. The question we need to ask when we're trying to evaluate our holiness would be this. Are you making plans to change your sinful behavior into righteous behavior? Are you making plans? A goal without a plan is just a dream. It's easy for us at many points in our life to look and say, boy, I sure have this characteristic, or I sure am that way. I don't know how many people over the years, and I'll use this one because nobody said it to me recently, but I don't know how many people have said to me, I'm just a worrier. I'm just a worrier. Well, great analysis. Now, what is your plan for change. And if you can't develop a plan for change, come to me, come to one of the other spiritual leaders. We will help you make a plan for change. The question of holiness is how far are we separated from sin? When I got saved, God moved me out of sin into righteousness, but now where am I living? Am I trying to keep one toe over there and one toe over there? It won't work. We've got to move from one place to the other. Second question for evaluation that I see in this chapter is this. Godliness. How well does my behavior show my reverence for God? Verse 11 again, he says, What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? And these two words sound very similar, but they have a little different base meaning. The word godliness means to have a reverence for God, to to be seeking to please God in all things. Um, And so I just want to give you some examples from the Scripture because this word is used in the Scripture and attached to specifics. 
And I can't give them all to you, but I can give you a few and some general ideas. So here's a question. Does the modesty of your appearance demonstrate a reverence for God? And 1 Timothy 2 says this, In like manner also the women, the women should adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly clothing, but that which is proper for women professing godliness. Now I'd like to expand this beyond women, because I, I don't have any bone to pick with ladies here. I think there's a principle here that we should think about. If we read verse 9, and we think about... This kind of clothing. Now, if you don't know, this idea of braided hair and golden pearls and so on, back in that day, they would do their hair up and put jewels in it. Obviously, the more you have, the wealthier you are, the more you can put there and so on. But they would really do it up. And it would be a thing where somebody's walking down the street and you'd go, wow, look at that. You know, maybe you'd go, wow, look at that. But it would be attention-getting. Could I suggest to you that the heart of this commandment is this? Are you dressing to get attention, or are you dressing to honor the Lord and accomplish His purposes in your life? Now, there's, there's room for variation there. I'll give you a real simple one. In Togo, Africa, women who are virtuous have to wear long dresses down to about here, this is the nationals and the missionaries. If you wear pants or shorts, you're a prostitute. Okay? Now, is that a true statement of the heart? No. But it, within their culture, if you said, my goal is to show that I honor God, then you would make this clothing choice. Every culture has some different factors that way. There's nothing ungodly with a woman wearing pants. That's, I'm not here to beat that drum. What I am here to say for men and women is, does your appearance demonstrate reverence for God? Does it demonstrate that that's what matters to you? Or is your appearance designed to get attention? A second question in this area of reverence for God. Do the ideas on which you build your life come from God? 1 Timothy 4 says this, reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. So the question would be, do you take up the common wisdom, quote-unquote, from the world? Here he refers to it as old wives' fables. He's not criticizing women. He's just talking about the, the old ideas that people pass around, you know, uh, feed a cold, starve a fever, or some other simple wisdom, but more so when it comes to life. Here's how you should live your life. Here's how you should live your life. You pick up the magazine on the, on the checkout counter. Here's how you should live your life. Or is your reverence for this? You say, this is how I'm going to live my life. There's a third question here. Do you have the appearance of reverence for God or the reality. First, Second Timothy 3.5, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. This is more so talking about religious practice. For instance, uh, there are people who think that religion consists of church attendance. 
And so they come to church, and they believe they have done God's will by attending church. Now, it is God's will for you to gather together with other believers, don't get me wrong. But the question is, do you just look like a religious person, or is there a reality in your heart of the transforming life of Christ? If you reverence God, these things will be true in your life. When I drive down the freeway, I set my cruise control, mainly because I'm lazy. I I get tired having my foot up there. So I set the cruise control, and I'm driving down the freeway, you know, 70 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, whatever it is. And uh, it never fails. Traffic's flowing along, probably some people passing me. And then there's a police officer right over there. Boom. And you know what happens to all the people who are going faster than me? They put on their brakes. And you know what the people who are going the speed limit do? They put on their brakes. And I think, really? I don't mind cruising past. If police officers going 60 and the speed limit 70, I'll go right by them. I got nothing to fear. Because I have a regard for the law, whether he's sitting there or not. Now, I'm not trying to tell you I drive perfectly all the time. I'm not trying to do that. But I'm telling you, there is a general reverence for the law. And so when I see him, I don't go, Oh, boy, there's a police officer. Oh, I wonder if I was doing something wrong. You know. Now, when the lights go on behind me, that's a different story. And that happened recently, too, and he was just trying to get past me. I thought, oh, thank the Lord. I hope. I'm glad I wasn't doing anything wrong. <laughs> but if you respect the law, you follow it. If you don't respect the law, you only follow it when it's looking. And that's what this, this idea of reverence for God is, do you reverence God in such a way that you're trying to live for Him, whether you think Him or anybody else is looking, or only when there is an inspection? Well, the third question from this chapter would be this one. Question of hope. How well am I characterized by optimism? Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, he's been talking about the fact, of verse 10 says, uh, when the day of the Lord comes, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is there going to be an end of the world? Yes, there is. Okay. Is there going to be a new heavens and a new earth? Yes, there is. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Is that what is in your vision for your future? Over the years, I've heard a fair number of Christians 
speak about death as though it were the worst thing that could happen. And, and I, one of the few times when I'm really gracious, but what I want to say is, really? Really? Now, I understand. I understand completely having some things you want to accomplish, having some grandkids to spoil, or feeling like there are people who need you. I understand that. And I think it is right to fight for life. I understand that better now than I did a year ago. But a real understanding of the greatness of heaven should be creating a joyful anticipation of the future and a confidence as we face the uncertainties of this physical life. This world will be destroyed. But we're not, we don't have our hope placed here. We have our hope placed there. And so there ought to be a degree of joyfulness even in sorrow, even in hardship. Part of anticipating the new heaven and new earth is not letting ourselves get too attached to this piece of sin-stained junk that we live on. Now think about this with me for a minute, will you? This world has been dominated by sin, even the physical world. You can read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says, This world, the whole creation groans waiting for salvation. You know what that tells me? That tells me that world version 2.0 is going to be so phenomenal you can't imagine how great it will be. And yet we look forward with a sour face. I think you ought to evaluate your level of joy and joyful anticipation of the future that God has. The fourth thing we need to evaluate is peacefulness. How, am, how well am I resting in God's care? Look at verse 14, please. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, looking forward to these things that will happen, <clears throat> Be diligent, give effort, work at being found in peace. Being found in peace. What does it mean to be diligent to be found by him in peace? It almost sounds like we're going to make peace happen, but that's not true. Only God can make peace happen, but our part in gaining that peace is to live in God's care. Are you so confident in God's loving care that you can live at peace? If you really believe that the everlasting arms are around you and God's hands are underneath you, then you can live at peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not like the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace of the world is the absence of difficulty and the absence of conflict. If nobody is bothering you and everything is peachy and you're moving along on smooth water, then there's peace. 
Jesus said, that's not the kind of peace I'm giving you. I'm going to give you peace not like that. So my peace is in the midst of difficulty, which can only come if I'm resting in God's care. Second question, are you turning your concerns over to God in prayer? You're familiar with this. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The thing and, and the peace of God will guard your heart. The thing that I'd challenge you to at this time of year and this time of evaluation is just to stop and say, how much time do I spend in anxiety and how much time do I spend at rest? I think we all do some of both because it's a constant learning process. The goal in 2011 would be to say, God, I want to spend more time at rest because I'm going to give you more of my concerns. And then the third question I would ask about peacefulness is this. Do you choose your actions and words in such a way as to make peaceful relationships? But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is an area of evaluation to say, how can I be more peaceful? Not that any of us are terrible, but the question is, could we be more like Christ? There's a fifth area of evaluation, integrity. The word integrity has to do with wholeness. Um, when we talk about integrity in an airliner, they will talk about one piece being bad. How much lack of integrity are you willing to allow in an airliner that you go up in the sky in? Is one hole okay? Or one hole here? Or one hole there? We like to think that the thing is functioning perfectly if we only went to the the garage where it's worked on, we might know differently, I don't know. But nobody stands up in that airliner and says, now folks, we've only got two or three problems with the airplane today, but we think it will be okay. We think we're going to make it to our destination. You say, wait a minute, I'd like to get on a plane where they say there's no problems. And of course, that is the goal that they're aiming at. So integrity, how much of my life is affected by Christ? When Christ takes us up out of sin and puts us down in righteousness. He scrubs us fully clean, but our practice day by day is one of up and down. And so the question is, how much am I willing to let sin in? Is it my goal to let it come in only this far? Or is my goal to be moving out all the way? Christ's goal for you is absolute perfection. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? So that he might make her holy and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word so that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that, that should, she should be holy and without blemish. And those are the words we're working off of here in verse 14. Without spot and blemish. God's goal for your life is absolute perfection. My dad has told a story in time past about being in some public place. I forget where he was. And he was a, you know, maybe a 12-year-old boy or something like that. And his pants ripped. And he 
didn't know what to do. So he had a, like a sun hat, and he put that sun hat back there, and he kept that sun hat back there till he got home to cover up the flaw in his pants. Covering up sin is not a solution. We might try to put some, some thing on top of it to hide it, but it's still there. And integrity means we are going to deal with what God brings our way, with what God shows us. I am going to do something about that. So the question, um, are you aiming to live for God completely? I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearance. That's a lofty goal. That's a lofty goal. It's real comforting for us to say nobody's perfect. That's true. Nobody's perfect. This, this one included. But the question is not, is anybody perfect? The question is, what's your goal? What's your standard? Where are you aspiring to? And God wants us to aspire to complete whole righteousness. There's a sixth area of evaluation. It's the area of vigilance. How well am I keeping my mind stayed on Christ? Look with me at verse 17, please. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, about the end of the world and how you should be living, beware, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. This morning the kids were all around, as they have been for the last couple of days, the little kids, and one of, them, one of them walked up to the other one and went, boom, just like that, and knocked him right on his behind. Now, I think if that kid knew it was coming, he'd have been ready, and maybe he'd have been able to stay on his feet. But he was caught completely off guard, and so he was knocked down. If you are not vigilant about your mind, the stuff in the world that is satanically inspired will knock you down as a Christian. That's what the danger was with these people here. Peter's writing to say, hey folks, don't be knocked off your guard by this. Be on guard, be vigilant, because God is still at work. God is not sleeping in heaven. God is saving people. God will burn this world up and create a new one. And that in that, in that new world, only believers in Christ and their Savior will live. If you do not actively cultivate this view of the future, you will either be lulled to sleep and inactivity or scared into inactivity. A couple of weeks ago in Portland, Oregon, a young man was arrested for attempting to set off a bomb uh, I think it was a Christmas tree lighting ceremony, and there was going to be hundreds or thousands of people in this area in downtown Portland. And you no doubt heard about this, where the FBI somehow found out about this fellow early on in the process, and they fed him information and set everything up, and it got right to the day where he drove that car down there, 
and dialed the number in on the cell phone and believed he was going to kill himself and set off a massive bomb and kill a bunch of other people. But ever since 9-11, the FBI and everybody else 